Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is episode three of the series covering the latest issue of the magazine, Made Perfect. Today, we'll be speaking with O. Carter Sneed about his book, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief of Plow. And I'm Susanna Black, Senior Editor at Plow. This is the episode where we do a deep Aristotelian dive into answering the question posed by the title of the book. Professor Sneed is William P. and Hazel B. White Director of the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture, Professor of Law and Concurrent Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame. Welcome, Carter. So I feel like I've been hearing this book, hearing pre-echoes and then echoes and then like lots of people talking about this book. And then I finally read it and it just, um, you know, when we were doing our creatures issue and then when, when we're doing this current disability issue, as I said, it really felt like um, pretty, cent- like just so much of what you talk about is central to the way that we think or the way that we try to think at least. And um do you want to sort of give an overview of what your uh, really brief over- overview of what your case here is? Like you're you're basically talking about um, what what the underlying issues with a lot of current law is. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the book basically makes two claims. One's kind of a methodological claim. The other one is a substantive claim. And the substantive grows out of the application of the method. So the method claim is that if you want to understand law most richly, you need to ask the question, what does the law and who does the law assume human beings to be? And that's for the simple reason that law at bottom exists really uh, to protect uh, persons and to promote the flourishing of persons. And so it has to, it's unavoidable that the law rests upon a kind of ex ante understanding or preconception about what persons are and what human flourishing is. Now that's not the very same question as, you know, when life begins or, or who counts as a person. Uh, Although it's deeply connected to those questions, which are essential to the issues in bioethics that I take up the issues of abortion and assisted reproduction and end of life decision-making. Um, but it's, it's meant to be a broader claim. So the, the law has to have assumptions about what you and I are and what we need and what are the threats to us are and what our flourishing consists in. And, and so the best way to understand the law, the deepest way to understand it, I argue, is through this particular what we'll call an anthropological lens. Uh, and and when, you, when you ask that question, when you a- analyze different areas of the law with that inductive question in mind, what exactly does the law think we are, what we need and what we should be afraid of and what we should pursue. Um, When you ask that question and you focus that question on particular areas of what I describe as vital conflicts of American public bioethics, the law of abortion, the law of end of life decision-making and the law relating to assisted, uh, assisted reproduction, what you find is the vision of the person and human flourishing that the law assumes is woefully incomplete and inadequate, so much so as to be dangerous. And for 20 plus years, I've been working in public bioethics and trying to get to the bottom of why it is that the law so frequently fails to protect the weakest and most vulnerable among us, children, the disabled, the elderly, and so on. And the answer that I came up with and what I sort of wrote up in the book is that because it gets the fundamental question of what it means to be human wrong. And what it misses about our humanity is our embodiment. It misses the fact that we are inexorably uh, bound where we are our bodies. We're not simply, we don't have bodies, but we are bodies. We're a dynamic union of mind and body. And the law only assumes 
uh, only focuses on the mind and the will as the fundamental reality of, of, of human existence. And it takes the fundamental reality of human existence as the individual. And it describes what human flourishing is as the kind of um, cognitive um, practice of sort of interrogating the depths of your own sensibilities, finding your own authentic truth, and then expressing it and configuring your life plan accordingly and pursuing your own truth, your own authenticity. Uh, that's what the law thinks people are, and that's what the law thinks human flourishing is, at least as as applied to these particular areas of bioethics. And that just doesn't even come close to describing what a human being is. Uh, that describes maybe one snapshot on the arc of human life for the very most privileged and successful and lucky people. Um, it doesn't capture the life arc of everyone of everybody. It doesn't capture the the life arc. It doesn't describe accurately entire swaths of the human population who are either temporarily or permanently in a state of complete and utter dependence upon others. Um, But what I argue is because the law understands human beings through this lens of what um, I use Robert Bella's phrase, expressive individualism, um, that's the anthropology that I just described. Because it only views humanity through that lens, it misses the entirety of what it means to be embodied, and then what follows from our embodiment, which is our vulnerability, our mutual dependence, and our subjection to natural limits. And uh, and so there are entire swaths of the human community that are invisible to the law, uh, that are left unprotected by the law, and, um, and then human flourishing is not served either. And what I describe as necessary for human flourishing is what Alistair McIntyre describes as networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving, which are essentially networks of people who are who make the good of others their own good. Uh, that's what we need to survive as embodied beings. That's what we need to flourish as embodied beings. That's how, what we need to learn to become the thing that we're supposed to be, which is to, that is to say to become the kind of person who can make the good of another their own good without seeking anything in return. Um, and so that's what the law should assume, and that's what the law, the measuring stick we should use to describe uh, or to determine whether law and policies are working or not. But that's not what's happening right now in the areas of of the vital conflicts of public bioethics that I talked about. And I suggest that we could try to focus more on these networks and focus on the virtues and practices, uh, virtues of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving that are necessary to shore up these networks of of, um, of people. So is this uh, view, this what you argue to be a false view of what human beings are, is this a new thing? I mean, we you're speaking specifically about the law in your book, which I thought was a very you know, helpful lens um, to think about how society at large, you know, also extra legally approaches questions of what it means to be human, what it means to flourish. But is this expressive individualism a new development specifically in law? We tend to think of laws sort of resting on, you know, uh, Roman civil law, common law in Anglo-Saxon countries, a long sort of history of development, which, you know, and, and historically was much you know, conditioned by Christianity. Um, where, 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 where did the snake enter the garden, uh, or was it always there? Two things. One is about law generally, right? So law uh, is irreducibly normative, right? So law always aims at particular goods and always aims away from or tries to remediate or even punish particular harms, um, and. And so the law has a twofold pedagogical mechanism, one of which is it reflects the goods and harms that a society is particularly cares about, particularly cares about what, how people see themselves. Um, 
and it, it also informs people as to what they should think about themselves, for better or worse. And that's true of the norms of a given polity, but it's also true of an anthropology of a given polity. So insofar as the law has these con- conceptions of expressive individualism undergirding these areas that I focus on in the book, that's in some ways a reflection of – of, of where we are, I think, as a country, uh, at least in certain – the most important circles that are responsible for making the law and interpreting the law. Um, and then also I think it's unfortunately a, a, a teacher of, of folks as to how to think about what, what how they should see themselves. Now, where did this start? It's a lot of – it's a very deep and interesting question. Um, uh, I will say that you know in the book I talk a little bit about Marianne Glendon, uh, my friend, uh, recently retired from Harvard Law School, wonderful uh, legal scholar and 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 diplomat. She was ambassador to the Holy See. Uh, she was a, a member of the President's Council on Bioethics, which is where I got to know her originally when I was serving as the general counsel of that body under the wonderful Chairman Leon Cass. Um, and she talks about. Um, the sort of notion of individualism being built in, especially into in American law. If you look at American law, even both public and private American law, the individual is the center of of most of the of the law's considerations. And Roscoe Pound talks about this, um, and she doesn't. And she has a really interesting essay describing the person in American law and the sort of individualism in American law. And I think I think the United States, in, in particular, is especially individualistic. Um, for reasons that you know others know more than I do, to sort in terms of a genealogical diagnosis of how it entered into the law, the, the expressive individualism more generally is very old. I mean, it's it's it. it you know, Charles Taylor has a wonderful genealogy of expressive individualism that I talk about in the book, and that you know, begins with Rousseau, and and then kind of makes its way and grows and becomes. Um, enlarged uh, in the Romantic literary era and Byron and Shelley and others, um, and then enters in Robert Bella's work in Habits of the Heart um, in 1985, who's a social scientist, diagnosed this kind of self-understanding as a more popular, uh, more popularly shared view uh, or self-understanding that really took hold in the in the 60s and 70s here in the United States. So. I mean, there's. It's a very deep question as to where it comes from and where it comes from in American law, and it would take a lot more time and thought to give it the the, the attention that it deserves. But um, but it, it is true that American law, in particular, and American society in particular, tends to be more individualistic and maybe a more fertile ground for expressive individualism to grow. There are kind of two parts um, that I kind of like to highlight. I guess one is just that the way that you describe um, law as perpetually essentially being surprised and unable to deal with human beings as they are and particularly human beings in you know as when they're infants or you know when they're fetuses and human beings at the end of their lives um and the other aspect is that it seems as though if you're going to um the law that even that seems to address human beings at their whatever peak earning years or at their their prime of life actually also doesn't see those human beings as they are because what those human beings you know what we are as we are at our in our prime of life um we we also need to be needed essentially we need to um be part of those networks of care um in you know maybe in more of a giving mode at that point but um we're it's not like you're 
immune from those networks of care until you are, except in those like, you know, very young or very old periods of life, we need to be part of those networks of care throughout our lives. Um, and that, that actually just sort of highlighted for me the way that like how we treat each other at our weakest has an impact on how we treat ourselves and each other, you know, the whole time. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Um, you, know, you hear people say, and it's true, that you can measure the decency of a society by how it treats its weakest members. Um, and 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 I also think it's really important to amplify what you just said about the importance of these networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving for the strong as well as for the weak. Because in the book, I argue it's not just that we need them for survival. It's not just that we need them when we're sick or disabled or young or old or what have you, but we need them, as you say, when we're strong. We need them to to, to be in the posture of uncalculated giving because that's, and this is a normative claim that I made, that's what we are, right? We are made for love and friendship by virtue of our embodiment. That's, that's, we stand in a relation to each other by virtue of the fact that we're embodied beings who are fragile and vulnerable and exist in time. And it's not just, um, and that's just not, it's not simply a challenge or an obstacle to be embodied. It's also, it's a, it's a gift. There's a wonderful moment in the early stages of writing the book where, you know, I took my old friend and mentor Leon cast to dinner at his old, his favorite restaurant in DC, which I think just closed recently, sadly. But, um, but we were at dinner and, you know, I showed up and gave him a hug and Leon's a, he probably wouldn't want me to say this, but he's a great hugger. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and so, uh, we sat down and we, um, we started chatting and I'm just going on and on about this book I was going to write and, and, and how, you know, thinking entirely about the challenges and deficits of embodiment and how they make us vulnerable and therefore dependent. And so they sort of place us in a relationship to each other. Um, and he said, he said, well, you know, it's not, it's not just a challenge, right? He said, if we, uh, if we weren't embodied, we couldn't have hugged each other when we met this the, at the, at the front door of the restaurant. He's like, there are great gifts that come with being embodied. There are great gifts that come from the vulner mutual vulnerability, mutual dependence. And, and like I say, you know, you can, you, you, you get as much in terms of developing into the thing that you're supposed to be by taking care of other people. We're most human when we're taking care of each other. Uh, and of course there are some people, uh, the very severely disabled who, um, who, also participate in these networks of uncalculated giving, graceful receiving, simply uh, as as the passive recipient of unconditional love and care, and and that's and 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 they're still part of that network. It's not the case that they're excluded. It's not a it's not a network only for people who can somehow uh, acknowledge or recognize con you know consciously the benefits that they're that uh, that are accruing from their their existence in that network. So in any event, uh, that's sort of a long-winded way of saying I completely agree with what you're saying, and it is the case that we just have to um, to recognize that these networks aren't just for survival. They're not just for meeting our needs. They're for learning to become the thing that we we are and that we're meant to be. Which is I I recognize a, a deeply normative claim that I'm making. You know what you're just saying about how, particularly, uh, for instance, those those with profound disability, by you know, by their embodiment, are actually um, can help focus us on uh, these networks of giving and receiving. Uh, 
in the process of reading your book and also putting together this most recent issue of Plow that's kind of our, our springboard for this series of podcasts, uh, I've been thinking more and more about that. Uh, the uh, the way that I, I, I wonder if, if people just haven't had that experience in their own lives because it's only through embodiment that you can learn to appreciate the value of, of, of other humans is embodied. Uh, and it may be that, you know, particularly you look at the last couple of years when people have been physically isolated, um, we've kind of become estranged from our own embodiment in a lot of ways. And it makes it a lot, a lot harder to appreciate, you know, um, what it can be just to say, be with a person who's disabled with whom one can't, necessarily have a fascinating conversation, uh, who may not be able to talk, who may need a lot of help um, in the day. And, and yet, you know, uh, you need to kind of have done it to to know that you that person is a real person that can be every bit as capable as, as anyone else of, of that kind of uncalculated giving and receiving that you were you were talking about. Uh, you know, so I wonder how much of this is, is also a product of, you know, this uh, kind of technological isolation um, that we've kind of got ourselves into in the last, you know, couple of decades. Yeah, no, I think I think that is what it is. I think there's a lot in what you're saying. Um, the um, one thing that immediately reminds me of is how we're depriving ourselves of the being present and having the encounter with persons with disabilities by virtue of the fact that a lot of persons with disabilities are being eliminated in, in the womb by abortion. Uh, the, the, the percentage of children who are aborted who, b- because they have Down syndrome, as you all discuss in your, in your disabilities issue, is staggering. And we're eliminating, just like Iceland you know, claimed that they, were, they had successfully defeated Down syndrome, right? There was no more Down syndrome in Iceland. And what they meant was they were, they were killing all the unborn children who were diagnosed with Down syndrome before they could be born. And, um, and I, I, I recognize it's a harsh way of saying it, but, but that's, that's the reality of the matter. And the absence of these people from our lives um, is a massive uh, uh, deficit in our own understanding of what it means to be and flourish as a human being and learn how to be humane ourselves. Um, and I was thinking about when you were talking just now, your, your article that you wrote about your friend Dwayne and the, the disabled young man that you worked with and befriended and helped take care of. Um, and, uh, and the, the kind of encounters that you were describing, they weren't verbal encounters. They weren't the kind of encounters that you have in a faculty lounge or, you know, in a college coffee shop or, in, you know, wherever, um, but uh, but they were richly human, and you describe being with him out in in the woods, and him laying in the leaves, and and the sort of um, even just the 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 kind of um, the glances that you exchanged uh, were fraught with with deep deep human meaning. Um, and you're right if you don't if you don't ever meet a person who has a disability, or even you know be around someone who makes you uncomfortable because of their physical disability or their physical impediments and you don't realize how to you know what 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 that discomfort in yourself means and what it what's and how it's necessary to grow out of that and to learn to 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 be with and recognize 
you know, another fellow human being, albeit one in a possibly, you know, distressing disguise, as Mother Teresa used to say about the poor in Calcutta. Um, you know, it's, that's, that's, that's a huge, we're never going to be able to become what we're supposed to be. We're never going to grow into and mature and become fully human ourselves unless we learn how to do, unless we learn how to take care of each other and especially take care of people who have profound disabilities, which is why, you know, I think it's essential that we structure society in a way in which persons who have disabilities and those who don't live together, you know, I mean, you have beautiful models of this, like in the large communities. I mean, there are wonderful communities at the Ukrainian Catholic University. Um, they have, the, they put in place this wonderful program where uh, persons with disabilities lived in community with the students. And it was a fantastic antidote, Not that, which is not to say that these people are simply exist to teach us things about ourselves. Obviously, that's not the case. But but it was a useful antidote to the kind of what you described, Peter, in your article as the, the sort of meritocratic fix, uh, fixation, that the value of people is in their cognitive capacity to produce value or insight or get good grades or go get work at Goldman Sachs or whatever, go work at a fancy nonprofit. Who knows what, you know, it doesn't have to be a capitalist thing, but you know what I'm saying? It's, it's um, the Bishop... Um, uh, Gujak, uh, the, uh, the Ukrainian, the rector of the university who's now, who now is a patriarch, I think of North America for the Ukrainian Catholic church, um, said these folks, when you encounter these folks, they don't, they don't want to know what your GPA is or where your summer internship is or where you're going to go to work after, after you graduate. They have one question for you. He said, and their one question for you is, can you love? And that's, and you, you think about the value of that, I mean that that that's as human as it gets, right? That that's stripped down to what it is that we need to be and what we need to embrace about ourselves and our friends and neighbors and community. It's not about what we can produce. That's fundamentally what it's about. And it's and it's in that kind of moment of encounter with a person with disabilities that you can that that, that emerges as the truth. You know, you're getting at one of the the themes that we keep on coming back to is this is not a niche issue. Uh, so often we speak of disability as one of those niche issues that affects a certain s- subcategory of people. Um, and that's what, you know, thanks you, thank you for what you said about, you know, the story of my, my late friend Dwayne. But that's what he kind of taught me. It really is um, a habit of the heart, to, to borrow Robert Bella's phrase, that you have to practice. Um, y- you, need to, you need to do it uh, to... To develop it, and and then it's not just about the person with a disability that you 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 are in relation to, but really about you know first of all your relationship to yourself. Um, if you think of yourself, or as in, in some ways I, I feel I I used to and probably still do think of of yourself in terms of your sort of measurable achievements and qualifications. Um, are you going to think of, of your kids that way, your spouse that way? Um, everybody else in the world that way. Uh, it really, it really leads to a, a, a deeply flawed and twisted kind of, uh, you know, sorting of people that goes way beyond, you know, the, the apparently narrow question of disability and people with disabilities and, and disability rights. No, that's, it gets, and it gets dark really quickly. I mean, the, we, we have, you have people who will say without any kind of embarrassment that they would, of course, abort their child with Down syndrome, where they would, of course, discontinue life-sustaining measures for a child or a loved one who is incapable of ever recovering their full cognitive functioning. 
um, because those are not lives worth living. Um, I mean, that's, that's a phrase we've heard before, right? I mean, although, albeit in German, um, and, uh, and, and it's, it's, and I think it's a direct result of this fixation on achievement and merit and, um, and producing value. And it's not, and I say, it's not simply, and that's not meant as simply as a criticism. I mean, it, it, you see it everywhere. I mean, you see it. I mean, I, I teach at a wonderful elite research university that is deeply Catholic and very intentionally Catholic. And you can't, and you constantly, it's like a gravitational pull. Like, oh, well, what, what internship do you do? What, what great, what are your, what's your GPA? What journals are you on? What do you, what, what, what do you want to do after you get done? And it, that's, you quickly reduce people to those elements of their, of their capacity to perform or their record of achievement. And it's just really unhealthy. And, um, and we have to constantly fight it. And people who, who are in the knowledge producing business, people who are in journalism, people who are in law, people who are in, you know, sort of opinion makers, you're, these are always people drawn from these communities where merit was, was, was the central animating goal and the central animating quality. Um, and it's, and it's, it's, it's disastrous to, to, to one's full understanding of, again, and I'm not, and I'm not suggesting that I'm free of these problems. I mean, myself, I find myself all the time, you know, thinking about, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I have teenagers, I have a teen, I have a teenager and I've got two wonderful little boys, uh, identical twin boys who are on the autism spectrum. And then I've got a 16 year old who is neurotypical and, you know, we're talking about where he, where's he going to go to college and that sort of thing. And you, st- and you get drawn into this kind of bizarre and, and oppressive self-imposed kind of prestige, um, merit-based thing that, it, that is the antithesis of actually loving each other the right way. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such an interesting sort of balance in a way, because of course we are called to exercise our gifts. And one of, you know, one of the things that we, you know, when we are at our kind of like strong point, the strong points of our lives, one of those gifts precisely is being able to show up for other people. Um, you know, they're called gifts. We are meant to give them. We are not meant to like use them as kind of like, you know, CV fodder. Um, so this is not a sort of like, you know, it's, it, what the, the anthropology that you're describing is not an anthropology of like human passivity or human, um, or, or, not seeing humans as called to a kind of greatness. It's just questioning the model of greatness that we've been given. Um, I mean, one of the phrases that I thought was actually really helpful that kind of came at the end of the book, or I noticed it at the end of the book, was, so I was, you know, I was going through this, I was reading, and you were talking about um, seeing ourselves as independent individual willers and choosers, and then I was thinking, like, versus what? Like, how? What is it that? How is it that we should think of ourselves primarily? And the phrase that you used, you used I think, in the last chapter, just members of the human family, um, I thought was really helpful, just as a kind of touchstone or go-to. Are like, are we living now as though we're members of the human family? Um, because that is, you know, whether or not we are at our most independently willing and choosing, that is what we have always been and will always be. That is what we were before we could will and choose. And that's what will be, you know, in our last moments. Um, and, you know, we're Christians in the resurrection of the body. We, that is what we always are. Um, so that was a really helpful phrase for me. Yeah, no, and I th- thanks for that. And, and um, 
you know, it can be it can seem a little abstract when you're talking about networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving and all these virtues of, you know, just generosity and hospitality and misericordia making the suffering of another person your own suffering. And then, of course, the virtues of graceful receiving, gratitude, chief among them, openness to the unbidden and kind of tolerance of imperfection, which are essential, by the way, for when we're talking about disabilities. But that's pretty abstract. Like to make it concrete, what we're talking about is a family, right? I mean, the, the, the family is the, is, the, is the network of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving par excellence. Like that's what it is. And you can see in parents and children, in, intrinsic to those relationships, those roles, not the individual wills of the participants, but the roles themselves. Being a parent inclines you, directs you to a particular set of unchosen obligations that you have to care for and to support the well-being of your child. And being a child gives you a, a whole array of unearned entitlements um, that, that, that you don't have to earn the right to be cared for by your parents. You don't have to earn the right to be you know, not left alone. Um, and, and, and then those relationships as the parents age and the child gets stronger and older, the, they gen, that, that balance kind of recalibrates and those obligations and entitlements sort of invert and they, and they run in different directions. Right. But, but, but it is the case that communities are like, I mean, it's, it's, we don't want to go too far with the analogy, I guess, but like, but the, the communities are like families and we do, we do oblig, owe obligations of care and concern to one another just by virtue of our shared membership in the human family. So yeah, that's, that's, um, I'm glad that that resonated with you. And now back to Carter Sneed, author of the book, What It Means to Be Human. So let's kind of talk about how this, where the rubber meets the road. There, this is a book, among other things, about what are basically a lot of hot button culture warish issues. You know, we've talked, we've touched on abortion a little bit, and you've talked about the way that, like, seeing, you know, you talked a great deal about the way that seeing people, seeing unborn children as children of particular mothers and fathers, children of parents, as opposed to, you know, persons or possibly not persons in abstract competition with other straight people, other persons who are strangers to them can help us think more accurately. But there are other practical issues beyond abortion that you um, touch on as well. Do you want to describe sort of what those just the, the three or four kind of top issues were that you look at in the book? Yeah. And so, I mean, in, in a way, the arguments, again, they are focused on law and public policy, but their arguments ultimately about how to care rightly for each other. And it begins by sort of framing the human question itself. And the reason, and just to stay on abortion just for one second, the reason that we have the most permissive and aggressive law on abortion really in the, in almost in the world, we're almost without peer in terms of how permissive uh, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the, 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 the paradigm that they've put in place that they've imposed on the country um, in terms of access to abortion throughout nine months of pregnancy. And I, in the book, I explained sort of mechanically, legally, doctrinally how that works. Um, but the reason for that really begins with the misframing of the of the human context in which the question arises and Justice Blackman and Roe v. Wade describe what's happening in the context, in the human context as basically a competition between strangers, uh, a woman uh, who uh, and, and a stranger, uh, subpersonal, less than human, less than personal uh, being that is invading and encroaching upon her interests, um, whether they be her and, and we shouldn't we shouldn't, un, you know, undervalue that. I mean, obviously, 
unplanned pregnancies are extraordinarily burdensome and we owe women and children and families a duty to come to their aid in every way we possibly can when we when we when when that happens uh both with law and with uh, private action but um but when you begin with the proposition that these are atomized individuals and one of them's a person because they have they can do the thing that make you a person, namely the introspection and the kind of cognitive abilities that make you a person, then you've got the other thing that's less than human or less than a person, and they have a conflict over scarce resources that rightly, in the judgment of Justice Blackman, belong to the woman. It makes sense that she should be allowed to use lethal force to repel that intruder, right? But that's not properly speaking, what is humanly happening in those contexts, right? You're actually talking about two living beings, two living human beings, members of the human family who are not strangers, but already are embedded in a relationship of parent and child. And and if you frame it that way, you say this is a crisis involving a mother and her child, every decent society, every decent person is going to stop what they're doing and rush to their aid and surround them with love and protection and support and, and to help them in any way that they can. So you see the, the the framing affects – the anthropological framing affects how you, you – your response. And that's how we get the law of abortion, I think, uh, fundamentally with that basic anthropological mistake along with a, a lot of very bad mistakes in terms of constitutional interpretation and, and, and understanding what the role of judges are. But I'll leave that for another time. Uh, but as you say, I also talk about other topics. I talk about assisted reproductive technology in which we have kind of the opposite of, of the abortion landscape. And the abortion landscape were dominated by the law of the Supreme Court and states and political branches basically can't do very much uh, other than what the Supreme Court allows them to do. In the context of assisted reproductive technology, it's essentially the opposite. It's, it is the Wild West. It's a completely open field where there are almost no limits uh, on, on individuals and on practitioners uh, to make a baby uh, by, by almost whatever means necessary or whatever means are chosen. And um, and again, it operates through the frame, the human framing of the situation that is that is um, implicit in that kind of landscape, that legal landscape, which is characterized by a very specific kind of narrowly understood freedom, um, is to think about people and what their interests are and the desire of individuals to uh, to have a child that they're biologically related to. And, um, and it, and, and, and that, and it, that, that beginning mis- anthropological mistake, not understanding, but in fact, what we're talking about is, is people who are embedded in webs of relationships already and including especially, um, what the, what these people want is not just to impose their unencumbered will on their bodies to produce a child that will then become the, the vessel of their hopes and dreams. Um, but instead, and by the way, let me just say very clearly, I want to be very clear about that. I'm not suggesting that that's what people who seek fertility treatments have in their minds. That's not what that's, it's not the anthropology of the patients that I'm talking about. It's the anthropology of the law itself in constructing or permitting a legal landscape in which there are no, no protections, restrictions, regulations, uh, frameworks of, of really almost any kind. Um, so and what and in fact it's the fact that the people the patients themselves don't merely want to assert their unencumbered wills what they want is to be parents and that is a 
that they want to participate in a in a particular kind of relationship, and so they should, and, and so the law should be constructed in a way to facilitate the flourishing of persons who want to be parents, and and and, and in that framework, that includes the children themselves. So you can't have a parent without a child, and so if you're gonna if you're gonna if you're gonna construct a just, humane, and wise system of regulation for fertility care and fertility treatment, you have to measure it according to the to the standard of is this a system that is adequately protecting and promoting the flourishing of every single person involved in this interaction, parents, children alike. And so, and that includes gestational surrogates and gamete donors and physicians and technicians, like everybody. Like we have to ask ourselves, is this, is the legal landscape actually well-designed to respond to the human needs and threats and risks that are present in this human context. Um, and we're not doing that because we don't, we flatten the context and we assume all that matters is to allow certain kinds of people to assert their unencumbered will with the aid of technology. And, um, and that's, and and so that's, that's the, the sort of anthropological mistake infecting the legal system there. And then the final point that I talk, the final area I talk about is end of life decision-making, both in terms of the choices, the, the, the freedom to discontinue life-sustaining measures or to decline life-sustaining measures as well as assisted suicide. And in both of those situations, the law assumes for the most part that what, what the, the purpose of the law is to help the auton- autonomous individual chooser to author the last chapter of his or her story uh, in a way that coheres with their own self-understanding. And that completely misunderstands the reality, the clinical reality of those situations. I mean, and I focus in the end-of-life decision-making context on people who, uh, on the de- declining life-sustaining measures, on people who can't make their own choices because they've become, because they've no, they're no longer co- cognitively capable of doing so. So, uh, so what the law tries to do is shoehorn that very unique con- patient clinical context into the paradigm of, of the autonomous chooser. When you don't actually have an autonomous chooser anymore, and frankly, when you go to the doctor, you don't go to the doctor in any context to be an autonomous chooser to imp- impose your unencumbered self, unencumbered will. You go because you're sick and you're vulnerable and you need help, and you need help from somebody who knows how to take care of you and who wants to take care of you, who's interested to take care of you. And that's true in the end-of-life context as well. And it seems to me that if we frame it and if we drive everybody to these sort of what are pre-commitment legal instruments where you're going to govern your treatment beyond competence – once you've lost competence, we're going to figure out uh, how to how to how to manage your end of life care based on what you thought you wanted, strictly based on what you thought you wanted, and, and memorialized in some kind of living will. That's important, right? Living wills are important, but that's not that's like that can't be the sole tool to to deal with end of life decision making. You have to have real people involved in the decision-making process, hopefully people that love you, if not people who have your best interest at heart, making decisions about what your needs are in your current state as this patient. And to idealize the autonomous chooser as the patient and to impose that onto the patient who, who can't meet that standard is to do a disservice to that patient. And you end up with decisions like, well, let's discontinue life-sustaining measures because this person will never have the same level of cognitive capability that he or she had before. They won't ever be at the level of functioning they were before. And that's just a kind of 
a false idol. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of taking an image of, of the autonomous chooser and making that the standard for whether or not to even continue someone's life-sustaining care. And, 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 and I think that that's a serious defect that we see in the law. And then with assisted suicide, it gets even worse because the, the regime for assisted suicide, certainly in the United States, and it's worse in Europe, is to, again, assume – is to facilitate – the, uh, the, the freedom to end one's life when we know that the clinical context in which those desires to end one's life emerge almost always involve um, uh, things like you know, clinical depression, treatable depression, a sense that one's a burden to others, um, you know, and, and, other ki- and, and the, the system itself is not designed to take that into account at all. It doesn't take into account the fragility and vulnerability that's owing to the embodied state of these patients and instead imagines them to be really just, um, you know, autonomous wills that they, that they need to, f- you know, rational choosers that they need to facilitate their, their one final existential choice when that's generally not at all the, the actual human context of that scenario. A couple of different things. Um, first of all, when you go to a doctor, one of the reasons that the doctor that you're putting yourself in the doctor's hands is because the doctor has a vision of what your end is, like what a, a healthy human being is. So the doctor is helping you towards that telos, which is not, you know, you're not telling the doctor, I would like to be this kind of human being. I would like to be, you know, sick in this particular way or well in this particular way. You just, you, you, the doctor knows what you ought to be and so helps you become that. Um, and I, this is a real kind of like far-fetched parallel, but I wonder whether, um, obviously, I, I, in, in certain ways, you tried very much to make this not a Christian book, um, which I appreciated, and it, because it's the kind of book that you, that you can put into the hands of people who aren't Christian. But at the same time, you know, we do have a vision as Christians of what our actual telos is, what our final end is. And putting ourselves in the hands of people who will help us die um, to get to that end um, in the way that we put ourselves in the hands of doctors who will help us, you know, live towards the end of being a flourishing human being seems really important. And, you know, obviously not help us die in the sense of, you know, finish us off quickly, but help us die in the sense of um, death in accord with, you know, who we are as people who, you know, people who don't belong to ourselves. Um, so it seems to me that even if you were in the position of fully autonomous chooser, which, you know, sometimes we actually are, like, there's still this other question of what ought you to choose as a fully autonomous chooser? Like, do you have the right, if you were a fully autonomous chooser um, with no depression and no whatever, to, and you know, no compromise in your um will no compromise in your intellect under those hypothetical circumstances, which I feel like are kind of rare in any human life, everyone's compromised a little bit, would you be then, um, would you then have the right, would you then have the, um, would it be an acceptable choice to choose to die? And it seems to me that the answer is no. Um, And that also seems to me to be a kind of memento mori that I feel like I'd like to incorporate into my own life, which is not just like living in in remembrance that you will die, but living in understanding that you don't have the right to choose when you will die, um, which actually strikes me as a profoundly hopeful thing. And one of the things that you talked about as an alternative to the living will framework is the healthcare proxy framework. And 
this was an incredibly helpful section to me because, you know, obviously, you know, we, we all are probably going to run into these kinds of things. And it had always been very terrifying to me to think about being someone's healthcare proxy because it's like, I, I don't, I didn't want to take that burden on. I didn't want to take that sort of moral burden on. But what you describe is that people who, people almost don't want to be able to will their own the, the circumstances of their own death or care. People would rather, you know, people are make living wills. They they say that they want to be able to dictate, but what they would rather do is turn their their care over to people who know them and love them. And you know, that seemed to me to be a pr- real profound kind of liberation from the framework of let me you know, the best way to do this is to impose my will right to the end. Um, instead, it's the best way to do this is to give myself into the care of those who love me and who want my my flourishing, um, my profound flourishing. Um, so that was, I don't know, thank you for that, I guess, is one, is one no, thing. No, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it does seem to me as though you kind of sidestep a little bit the um, idea of, you know, even if you were absolutely free, psychologically and um you know intellectually to 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 make a decision would you then be um would you then have the right to decide when you died yeah so yeah no so so i I chose to focus on the clinical context in which the person who is um dependent upon life-sustaining measures is not capable of making decisions for themselves uh because it seemed to me that that was the most dangerous situation, legally speaking and term and, and morally speaking and just humanly speaking, right? It's that, it's that situation in which people are charged with, um, um, making choices for other people who cannot in that moment choose for themselves anymore. And what I try to argue is that the emphasis on autonomy and expressive individualism leads us in, in a wrong direction because, it, it, it seeks, it, it, it impels us to apply categories that don't make sense and are incommensurable to the clinical context of a person who can't decide, right? Um, and I try to say that it's really important and that there should actually be legal. And, and let me just back up one step. So it's a very hard question as to what the law should do in terms of managing end-of-life decision-making, right? Should the law, because it would be quite a thing, I mean, we have to think about what it would mean to impose the mechanism of the law into that context and what it would do to that context. Um, and is it worth it uh, to for the law to intervene and to interrogate people about the reasons why they are declining unwanted medical care or discontinuing life-sustaining measures, right? Of course, that's, of course, discontinuing someone's life-sustaining measures for the sake of ending their lives, hastening their deaths, or even discontinuing life-sustaining measures for ourselves so that we can hasten our own deaths is a kind of choice for death, which I think is uh, – I mean, I, I – I, I'd, I'd, I would disagree with that choice, right? Like I'm, I, I think that that's a, I think that's, I don't think people have the right to make those decisions um, as a moral matter, right? But then the question becomes, should the law interpose itself and say, all right, every time, every clinical instance in which we're going to discontinue or decline life-sustaining measures, should the, should the prosecutor or whomever interrogate the family about why it is they're doing what they're doing and make them prove that they're doing it you know, so that, so as not to, um, or make the individual prove that they're not doing it to end their own lives. I think that where I come down, and I don't 
make this case in the book, but I mean, it's sort of due by omission that, that it's better in the, in the discontinuing life-sustaining measures situation for pe- actually, I think I do say it directly for people who are fully competent, um, that they should, the, 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 the law shouldn't intervene to interrogate them about their reasons for discontinuing life-sustaining measures or declining life-sustaining measures with the understanding that that's going to open the possibility of people making immoral decisions about their own lives. Um, and I, and I, and I recognize that they're going to make decisions that I strongly disagree with. Um, and, and, um, and I think I, my point is that I think I'm willing to let that, I, I am, I don't think I am willing to let that happen in a regulatory regime rather than interpose the, the mechanisms of the state into the, the, uh, the clinical context involving people who are fully capable of making clinical decisions on their own behalf regarding life-sustaining measures. Now, when we're, com- we're talking about people who are incompetent, I have a different view, and my view is the state has to insist that the people who are discontinuing life-sustaining measures are doing so in a way that is not um, imposing their own view of quality of life on the patient, that they're not making a judgment to discontinue their life because they think that that life has become a life not worth living anymore. Now bracket the question of whether or not a person should legally be capable of binding themselves to have others do that for them once they've lost competence. Um, I think that's a bad. I think that's bad policy. I haven't taken a position really as to whether or not I would sort of make that illegal, right? To say that you can't. But the law right now, the way it stands, is you have to prove by clear and convincing evidence that this that you're implementing the person's wishes that are specified to this precise clinical context. And in practice, that's a hard standard to meet. That's a very high standard, um, and I think that that's a pretty good until. I'm convinced that there's a kind of spate of people being, you know, eliminated by their caregivers. I think I'm, I'm, I think I'm probably comfortable with the standard of proof and the burden of proof being allocated to the person who wishes to discontinue life-staying measures for a now incompetent patient. Um, as terms of best practices, what I think is the best thing to do is to not is the question shouldn't be what did this person want when they were young and in the peak of health. The question should be is what's the best way to care for this patient right now. And one important side constraint on that query of what's the best way to care for this person right now is you never hasten some, seek to hasten someone's death because you think that their condition is a condition that's not worthy of, of living. That you, think that you think that their quality of life or their incapacity to, to regain consciousness or something like that is – that's never a sufficient justification in my mind to discontinue life-sustaining measures for someone. Uh, and that has to be a kind of side correction. And that's consistent with what the President's Council on Bioethics uh, pr- uh, suggested in its, uh, in its report, Taking Care, uh, Ethical Caregiving for an Aging Society. I think I, yeah, I think I'm more of an integralist or more of like, a, um, I don't know, legal authoritarian in this than you are. Um, but I also recognize the sort of the, the, the strategy that you're taking. And I also kind of want to re- refocus um, the way that you've talked about this on um, again, I, I think that your massive criticism is leveled against, for example, Ronald Dworkin. There's this horrific Ronald Dworkin quote. Um, People want their deaths, if possible, to express and in that way vividly confirm the values they believe most important to their lives, which can be like, yeah, I want my death to do that. But it's also, you know, given that it's Ronald Dworkin, given that it's going to be sort of the legal and you know, sociological framework for the way that kind of boomers are going to think about their own deaths, it sort of raises this image or raises the specter of like a bunch of people like 
essentially designing their deaths as kind of, um, you know, die-ins essentially, or, you know, uh, experiential that, that's, art that's pieces. That's not hypothetical. I mean, that, that, that's happening. I mean, that you, there are articles about this in, in San Francisco and uh, where people have these events where they are being, you know, they take the barbiturates to end their lives at the end of some kind of event where people, you know, do, do whatever they do to honor that person's um, self-understanding. Yeah. And it, that seems to me to be the reason that that seems to me to be horrifying is because death strikes me as like the the last strikes me as death is the kind of the last moment where you are able to not be the god of your own life and not be the kind of art director of your own life, but actually be a vulnerable subject and ask for help both from other people and you know possibly from God and that asking for help from other people um, as the kind of default or thing that we ought to be focusing on. Um, there was a, you know, the Council on Bioethics has this quote um, that you that you have at the towards the end of the chapter. Um, this approach, sort of the the healthcare proxy approach, emphasizes less the importance of self determination and correspondingly more the importance of solidarity and interdependence. It invites us to move towards our final days and years, not in a spirit that isolates our free decisions from the networks of those who love and care for us, but instead in a spirit that entrusts our dying to those who have supported us in our living. It enlists them to stay by our side to the very end. And I feel like that opening, opening yourself up as you, you know, as you think about dying to those who love you and opening yourself up as you think about dying to God are kind of parallel for me. Um, and I, I, I don't know if that's, something that you've contemplated. No, I, th but it, I, it, I think that's least... very nicely said. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And let me just say also that the the dark side, and Carl Schneider of University of Michigan Law School has pointed that the dark side of like an overemphasis on autonomy, like the flip side of patient autonomy is patient abandonment, right? You talk about people, you want your loved ones to care for you and stay with you as you're dying. Um, if the paradigm is the assertion of the unencumbered will, then that's then what what's as a loved one you know why why would you stick around right i mean like that's it's if this if what this is about is the individual's final assertion the final existential assertion of his or her unencumbered self that's a that's a that's a solitary act that's not something that involves love yeah exactly exactly and so um acknowledging vulnerability acknowledging interdependence is something that the emphasis on autonomy and expressive individualism can't abide, and that's why it has to be uh, has to be moderated, has to be rooted out, basically from from the foundations of the law. It seems to me. Um, so let's turn back a little bit. We're if you don't, if you have a little bit more time, I'd love to continue this for a bit, um, just because I'd like to talk a little bit about um, assisted reproduction. And one of the things that I've noticed about the way that this is talked about. Um, among Christians is, you know, obviously conservative Christians tend to be very, very strongly and universally against abortion. And there's a much, much less strong kind of um, cry, outcry against things like IVF, um, things like, you know, we can talk about birth control, but certainly the birth control pill, which um, can cause abortifacient you know, can uh, one of its modes of activity is activity is abortifacient, but IVF um, is something that's extremely popular among evangelicals, from what I can tell, um, and that leads me to think that the reasons that Christians have often for being anti-abortion—it's not that 
they shouldn't be anti-abortion. They should. But their reasons are kind of fundamentally liberal in the sense that often I think they think of, um, you know, we shouldn't aggress against the fetus. There's like a non-aggression principle um, as opposed to thinking about um, like a deeper anthropological understanding of what humans are and what parents and children are. Um, because if, if there were that deeper understanding, I think there would be a more sort of resounding evangelical um, sort of rejection of IVF. Is that something that you've noticed? Yeah. I mean, I will say, I mean, I don't, I don't know about, I mean, I, I certainly, I haven't thought much about what you said. I mean, what you said about the sort of impulses and where the, where the folks are coming from and I'm Catholic. And so I'm a little bit nervous to talk about what evangelicals think or what they don't think. Um, and so, I mean, I have wonderful evangelical friends and, and they're extraordinary people and, and, um, but, uh, so I'll just say, I'll just speak sort of generally about it. I, I think, I think the pro, so what, what you run into, and I'll just stick to Catholics, and what you run into with Catholics sometimes is like, well, if you can make sure that no embryos are destroyed, why can't you do IVF? Right. Like that's, that's the, so it's, it's, it's actually, we can't, we don't want to hurt. We, we do believe that human, their human beings are, you know, entitled to moral respect and uh, full, full personhood, you know, from the moment of conception, et cetera. And so when we, we so the, isn't the problem with IVF the use and destruction of embryos? And what the church says in response to that is no, that's not the full problem with it. The problem with it is it in fact is a kind of distortion of what it means to be a parent and what it means to, to conceive and, 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 uh, and to have children, um, that it interposes sort of rational mastery in a way that threatens to transform the process of one of procreation where the new life supervenes on the loving act of the, you know, the, of the conjugal act of husband and wife into a kind of drive for manufacture of a, of a human being without, you know, fracturing the unitive and the procreative dimensions of the, of the conjugal act and, and end, ending up sort of imposing biotechnology in a place and not even, it's not even a cure for infertility, but it's a kind of circumvention of it. Um, and where you, and the pathologies that are responsible for the infertility are not addressed. In fact, all you're doing is working around it by conceiving a human being outside of the body with the aid of technology and then transferring him or her to her mom's uterus or to gestational surrogate's uterus or whatever. I mean, um, by fracturing all the integrated parts of the, of, of human procreation, we, we, risk a lot of things. And, and Gil Mylander, who himself is of course not Catholic, he's an amazing Lutheran, um, uh, Christian ethicist talks about, you know, thinking about, you know, it matters how children come into the world. Uh, you can't stand an equal relation to someone, uh, who you've made, right? Children are begotten. They're not made. And so the idea of, 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 of an entire, I mean, forget the fact that it's like a giant money-making industry that, in some ways exploits very vulnerable people. Um, you know, it involves things like sex selection and, 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 and uh, trait selection and all sorts of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and uh, all the, uh, all this, this whole array of human uh, choice and, and um, rational mastery being interposed into a situation where what a child fundamentally is, what being a parent fundamentally is, is to, is to accept and love 
a child is a gift unconditionally. Leon Cass said, a child is a mysterious stranger that you welcome and you love unconditionally. And we should measure our success or failure in terms of promoting the becoming of parents to, to, against the standard of how, how well are we doing in terms of promoting the concept and promoting the practice and the reality and the embrace of the reality that a child is a gift that, it, uh, that is meant to be loved and welcomed into the world unconditionally. And if we're doing things or if the law is facilitating things that are antithetical to that truth about what a child is and what it means to be a parent, then we have some work to do and we need to fix the law in order to, to bring it into alignment with that. Yeah. It seems to me that like the, the bad there, you know, I, there are a bunch of people who I know of who kind of get very freaked out by the idea of, um, you know, basically like our, our test tube, like our CRISPR babies, like babies who are, um, sort of genetically enhanced or whatever, or whose, whose genes are altered, are they going to be like fully human? I know a bunch of people who like have extremely science fiction-y and weird takes towards that. It seems to me that like, you know, these are people, these are human people made in God's image who he loves and for whom, you know, Christ died. The problem really almost lies, the, the problem isn't them. The problem is in the way that they're, progenitors or their makers kind of are going to start thinking about them because it will be hard to sort of recognize or it'll be, you know, potentially be harder to recognize the, you know, fundamental mystery that will, that they will be because they're human beings. If you think that you understand that mystery because you've, you know, you think that you know everything that went into making them. Right. No. I mean, when you assume the role of creator, um, it's hard not to think of the thing that you created as, as, uh, your creature, something that you made and that you, uh, and you made in whatever image you made it in. And I think we have to, and everybody, not just, and this is not meant as a criticism of other people. This is meant as a kind of general call to self-reflection that I'm include, includes me and everybody else is that we need to ask ourselves what it is about the impulse to do whatever it takes to have a child that is the child of your own flesh, what, where does that come from, right? Like, I mean, what is, what's the drive there when there is a world of children who, um, who need to be adopted, who need homes, and we understand, especially as Christians, uh, that adoption is central to our story of who we are as Christians. We, are, we have been grafted on to the, to the, we, we weren't the, the chosen people, right? I mean, we, we have, we've been placed in the position, as St. Paul says, through who you say, who, who's, uh, who you thasia, to be placed in the position of sonship and daughtership, despite the fact that we're not entitled to it by lineage, right? I mean, and so I, I would make, I would just take this opportunity to make the case for, to, uh, to ask yourself, why does you want to be a parent? Do you want to be a parent because you want to have, uh, because there's, because uh, you, you want to, recreate yourself in some way? Or do you want to be a parent because you want to practice the self-emptying love on a person who needs a family, who needs a place of belonging, whether that's a biological child or a child from adoption? Yeah. And it seems, I mean, it seems like that might be a good place to end because you've gotten right around again to the idea of the fundamental reality of who we are, um, both adopted and natural children and parents and friends and, and just who we who we are in general as we're gifts and we are, and we're givers and we're in relationship to each other as people who um, both give and receive. And, you know, we are members of this, um, this human family. And 
I just, um, again, I would just urge all of our listeners to grab and read uh, um, Dr. Sneed's book, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. And thank you so much for um, coming on the podcast. No, it's my great pleasure. And thank you for Plow. It's a wonderful gift. And I, I, I enjoy reading it all the time. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your app of choice and rate us as well. Tune in next week for a conversation with acclaimed bioethicist Rosemary Garland Thompson and with Leah Labresco, a dear friend and, in fact, contributing editor of Plow. Mm-hmm.